All right, welcome back to the Feed the Ball podcast. This is Derek Duncan, and today for episode seven, I'm speaking with architect Steve Smyers. Back when I first got into the golf writing business, this would have been around 2001, I guess, I had only a rudimentary knowledge of golf course architecture. I knew who Perry Maxwell was, but my learning curve, you could say, was on the shallow end. It was around then that I really started to dig deeper into it, reading the works of Golden Age architects and paying closer attention to the new courses that were opening around the country. I was working for a regional internet website and writing about courses and travel, and I noticed a lot of courses in Florida, including the one I played locally, were designed by a guy named Steve Smyers, and they looked totally cool. So I called him on the phone and started to ask him a lot of architecture questions, and basically acted like I knew a lot more than I did. Uh, amazingly, he was patient and courteous and answered my questions, and we had a conversation as if we had equal knowledge about the great golf courses of the world and strategy, even though I'm sure he could tell I was totally green and didn't know what the hell I was talking about. I mean, I think I even compared the 15th hole at Southern Dunes, one of his better designs, to the 17th hole at National Golf Links of America, the Great Levin Hole. It was a total reach, and Steve admitted as much, but he didn't make me feel stupid about it. It's totally embarrassing to even think about that now, but the way he graciously handled it made an impression on me. I've had the chance to talk and spend some time with him on other occasions over the years, and if there's one consistent thing about Steve, it's his graciousness and friendliness. When it comes to design, no one puts more thought than Steve Smyers does into the elements of strategy, the placement of hazards, the way the ground receives shots, and how uneven stances and wind affect shot shapes. He's been an elite amateur player his entire adult life. He played on a national championship team at the University of Florida, along with players like Andy Bean, Gary Koch, and Fred Ridley, the current chairman of Augusta National, and competed in USGA events and other tournaments on courses around the world. That history of competitive play and the experience of past competitions comes through in the way he designs golf holes that challenge and stimulate players both physically and psychologically. He's also been an active member of the USGA, serving on the Executive Committee, the Competition Committee, as well as the Equipment and Standards Committee, and so he's got some insightful thoughts and ideas about why equipment, physical training, and advances in agronomy play such a critical role in how golf's played at the highest levels. We get into all of this in the discussion, and I'm just very happy to have Steve join me on the podcast. I hope you enjoy it too. So just brushing up on the world of, of Steve Smyers and checking in on what you've been up to, it seems like things are, are going as well as ever and you've been busy and got some good, interesting projects in the recent past and, and coming up right now. We do. We do. Uh, we're, we're, we're an exciting time. We really are. For good. Our well, business. It only took about 40 years to get there, but <laughs> we're finally there. Well, <laughs> I remember you told me uh, in one of our previous conversations in you know, over the years that you said kind of tongue in cheek, I know, but you said you were the king of bad golf properties. Yeah, but king of bad sites. You say yeah. king of bad sites. I, I, you... I actually said shitty sites, but I will we'll, we'll keep it. Yeah. Okay, well, this, you know, the FCC is not listening, so we can say that. Okay, yeah. Um, are you, is that a title you still hold, or have, have things changed for you? Yeah, we we've got some interesting sites now. We really do. Um, the the property that we have we had in Dallas, uh, it was a nice site for that part of the world. But we had a client that uh, uh, had a, we had a 33 acre lake in the middle of the property, 
and he he wanted to clean up the lake, dredge it. It was first dammed up in 1908, and it had a lot of silt in it and things like that. So we we cleaned up the lake, and with the silt that came out of the lake, we were actually able to manufacture a very nice site. So it wasn't it wasn't a, a great site to begin with. It was a nice site, but when we finished with it, <coughs> excuse me, it looks like a it looks like it's been there forever, and it, it's a pretty dynamic-looking piece of property. I think the the first goal is always to have maybe a coastal site with some sandy dunes to build on. Short of that, it's, it's a project with a prodigious budget. So I guess if you can't have yeah. one, it's good to have the other. Well, everybody responds to a very strong landscape setting, and a strong landscape setting is is interesting topography, interesting terrain, and a very strong landscape edge. and And an ocean is the strongest edge, and the, and the most unique setting. Outside that, you might have a big lake or a unique mountain range or something like that. So, uh, if you don't have any of the above, then you want good topography with some good surrounds. And so we created good good topography and created good surrounds. And this is called Merido. It's in Dallas, and it's a private club that was an old course that you redeveloped. And just hearing you talk about it in the past, you had a mandate or a request to make this into really a tournament-style golf course that where important high-level tournaments could be played in a place that's going to test elite level of play. That must have been music to your ears to kind of get that kind of instruction. It really was. And, you know, it's it's kind of interesting because there is a uh, segment of the golfing market. There, there's avid golfers out there that love to go and play at those type of facilities. And uh, they, there are a lot of people who enjoy uh, competition. There are a lot of people who enjoy a, cha- uh, a stern, stern but very fair test of golf. And uh, I think we kind of hit that little little niche. You know, you look at uh, some of the great championship venues uh, around the country, and uh, Wingfoot comes to mind. Wingfoot, Oakmont, you know, uh, Hazeltine, and those those are very very popular golf courses for the membership. But the membership is a very avid. Uh, they're very avid golfers. And so we just, my client identified that need in the Dallas market, and uh, that's what we did. And it's kind of interesting. <clears throat> We've had Lee Trevino offer some very nice uh, comments about the place. And Jordan Spieth goes out there with his golfing buddies and plays out there quite a bit. So I think we, I think we hit our mark. Yeah, go into a little bit further about your design on this golf course. It's going to be set up and designed to, like you just said, host a high level of player you spent your whole career, you know, really thinking about how to challenge great players. It's always kind of been in the forefront of your thoughts. And now you have this landscape in order to exercise and get some of those ideas into the ground. Um, What are those ideas? What did you come, what have you come to realize and how are they expressed at Merido? Well, I think, you know, the, the main thing that when people talk about this, when people think about a stern test of golf, they they think it's punitive, and and the whole key here is to understand what is challenging and fair, but not unfair. And people, regardless of their handicap, will pretty much respond well to something that is a fair but stern test of golf. And for the elite player, number one, and I, I hearken back to what Ben Hogan said. I was very fortunate to watch him hit golf balls back in the 90s, but 
he always made this comment, if you drive the golf ball well, you can attack the golf course. If you drive it poorly, the golf course will attack you. And and, I, and that has always stuck in my mind, and I look at the, the great ball strikers uh, through the years, and they've all been great drivers of the golf ball. So we wanted to set up a golf course that would be that would require great driving, but if you have and you if you if you don't drive it good, we didn't want to be be so punitive that would that it would be a lost ball. That you would you would have to if you got it out of position, you'd want to get yourself in position with the best course management you, that you can manage. So that that was a very key consideration, and and in doing so we realize that the modern day player the most important thing for them is to be able to control the spin on their iron shots so controlling the spin was putting the ball in the fairway uh if they didn't if they were not successful putting their ball in the fairway we we develop you know we we develop kind of championship with fairways uh, and we created angles, so we wanted to favor one side of the fairway to the other to, to have the best shot or the best angle, depending on the hole location. But if you got it out of the fairway, what we designed was was rough but light rough. And the the um, the studies show that to get a, a great player to have to uh, really be able to anticipate how the ball was going to come off the club on their iron shots, all you had to do is grow the rough up to where it comes to the equator of the golf ball. There's so many people that think that rough is high, punitive. You hit it in the rough, you just chop it out. And that's not that's not the case in today's world. A person with a high swing speed, if the, if the uh, grass goes to the equator of the golf ball, then they have very difficult time controlling the spin on the ball. That's a person with high swing speed. If you get a person with a lower swing speed, the ball doesn't necessarily fly, but it comes out and it, it more or less hits and runs. So we built that golf course where everything is open in the front. So if you have a, a even a, a good player with a lower swing speed, they have the option of hitting it short of the green and running it up on the green. So just about all of the putting surfaces at Merido uh, are open in the front where you can where. If you manage yourself correctly, you can hit it out of the rough and, and run it onto the green. So that's that's the first thing we wanted to do is is to require great great driving to the golf ball. And then the second thing is we produced uh, lies in the fairway that you had to actually study the lie when you're hitting an iron shot. In a, and and if you did hit it in the fairway, we didn't give you a flat lie. We didn't give you a, a real awkward lie, but we. We produced a, a certain type of lie that you had to be able to identify how that would affect the uh, the ball coming off the club. In other words, sometimes we'd create a uh, for a right-handed golfer uh, a ball a lie with the ball above your feet, which would encourage a draw. And the wind is always a prominent factor uh, in that part of the world, so we wanted to, the golfer to be able to match the the lie up with the wind conditions as well. So they we we require them not only great to be great ball strikers, but but great managers and great uh, thinkers of the game, and and be able to anticipate how uh, be able to anticipate how the ball is going to come off the club face. Yeah, those are things that 
the higher handicap player really doesn't pay attention to or doesn't notice, and maybe they're not able to maneuver their ball or plot their way around the golf course. But elite players pay attention to that kind of thing, and the more they play the course, the more they'll understand it's important to favor one side of the fairway or the other so they can get that good lie so they don't have the, you know, they're not hitting from a hanging lie, you know, into a hook green or something like that. So Right, exactly. And the, and the higher handicappers, they, they like you say, they can't, they really don't understand that. But they, we did give them, a, we always give them an option or a route up to the putting surface or, or through, through the golf course. Through the golf course, there's always a route. We never require them to hit a forced shot. So to speak. Yeah. So as far as the r- results go, the go- the course is uh, uh, is open and complete now, and with the idea in mind that it's going to host significant tournaments, have you played it? Are you have you been successful at, at creating yeah, a course I, like that? You know what? I did. I did play it. Uh, they had. Uh, well, I guess it was kind of the opening, right? The opening they hosted the U.S. Senior Amateur Qualifier there, and. Uh, I uh, wasn't real well prepared. I flew in late the night before and got up and played and uh, and lost in a playoff <laughs> to qualify. So that that was my experience. And then they had. It's probably good you didn't win. You did, there'd have been called foul on you, you know, for yeah, you know, your I golf course. What, was, we had a, a tremendous turnout uh, for the qualifier, and um, I don't know. I was probably a little bit more uneasy. Uh, in that qualifier that I've ever been, knowing that there were good, negative, good and negative comments out there, I was was concerned more about the comments than what I was shooting. But uh, did anybody it, does anybody was, have the the courage to tell you to your face that they didn't like something? Yeah, that's happened. That happens all the time. Oh, really? That happens yeah. all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. I got. Uh, yeah, we we. Uh, there's. I could cite several examples, but that happens to just about every designer. Um, it's part of the nature of the business, but fortunately, usually they we, usually uh, they say it, you know, behind your back, not to your face. No, we've we've got them to our face. Uh, you know, somebody somebody has a bad round of golf, but it can't be their fault. It, <laughs> it's got to be something else. Yeah. So we understand that. Uh, but the comments were pretty positive then, and then they uh, hosted the uh, Texas Shootout, which is a Ryder Cup format between uh, North Texas and the North Texas, uh, you know, it's an amateur shootout between the people from North Texas and people from South Texas. And they hosted that for a three-day uh, Ryder Cup format, and I think the, the response from that was pretty good. So you think it can hold up pretty well to uh, statewide events and even regional events? And I, I heard through the grapevine they might at some point try to attract like a PGA championship or something along those lines. You know, Lee Trevino's touting it, uh, and, and this is a quote. He uh, quoted this in uh, Global Golf Post. He said that it, Texas finally has a course that could host a PGA or a USGA, a PGA Championship or the U.S. Open. Wow. Which which was nice. Yeah, that was a very nice quote. And whereas, uh, you know, our client would embrace that if that opportunity should ever exist. Mm-hmm. Listening to you describe the way the golf course was built and the, the way the lake was manipulated in building the the hills and the elevation changes it's a big drastic swing from the other notable new golf course in dallas at uh, trinity forest have you been down and, and seen that and do you have any comments on the compare and contrast 
Well, I have been to Trinity. Uh, I went around it uh, two times with Bill Core. I went around with the superintendent there, uh, Casey, to because they used a, a new uh, zoysia grass that I thought was very interesting. And then uh, I went out to Dallas to actually play it. So I've been around it quite a bit. You know, I think the beauty of the game of golf is that, uh, and I like the course. I like the course, and I, I you know, I even like the, I even like the property it's on. I think it's going to be a wonderful club, uh, but it is the beauty of uh, golf and golf architecture is that you know you, everything is different. Properties are different, designers are different, and it requires different thought process and different type of stimulation in a round of golf. Our golf course contrasts greatly with Trinity Forest. Uh, it is two different styles of play. Uh, we we put an emphasis on accurate driving of the golf ball. Uh, they they're a little more forgiving out there. Um, they will say that there's there's a bit of angles to it. Uh, I think we've got angles on ours as well. Uh, we we actually have a dance of of high grass and short grass around around our putting surfaces where everything there is short. So I think there's a little bit more variety in uh, shot selection. You know, at at Merido. Uh though there is variety there. I think if with pressure on uh, with short grass, I think the probably the wisest play for most golfers at Trinity Forest would be to to putt the golf ball. Uh, but chipping is is available, and uh, you know I think the two courses contrast nicely against one another. I, I wouldn't say one's better than the other. I would just say they are both. It would be a very very uh, unique two days of golf to experience two totally different type of uh, design styles. Yeah, and each property had its own set of limitations. Trinity Forest was built on an old garbage waste site that had to be capped and so that you know you couldn't really plant or go deep into the soil and you know you had the lake on your property and an existing golf course um, so it is an interesting compare and contrast to get the two different design styles it, it this is hypothetical i just thought of this if you were if you had gotten the job at trinity forest was there a way to do anything different with that golf course than bill and ben did well, you know, I I really don't know enough about it to to know that. I I know when Bill went around there with me, he kind of explained uh, what they did. I personally think they did one heck of a good job there. I think it's I think they did a. I mean, it's got a great feel. The rhythm to the course is good. It's a it's a it's an excellent walking course, as is Merido. So I think they did. You know, I think they did a a, a great job to it. I don't know what I'd do would would want to see much much uh anything different done to it. Your comments on the the rough, you know, the having the short light layer of rough at Merido is interesting because a lot of talk about how far the ball goes now and how do you challenge tour pros with the lengths they're hitting the ball. One of the things I hear a lot anyway is, you know, you've got to grow the rough up to to penalize them and uh, make sure that they don't get clean shots at the ball. But it's interesting to hear your comments that you, you only need a, a light, short cut of rough to kind of put doubt into their minds that they're going to hit a flyer out of it. And it reminds me, you know, obviously the perfect example of that is Augusta National when they added that 10 or 12 years ago, whenever it was. And I think you've said on the record that you were a fan of the changes at Augusta National. And then that made me think a college roommate of, or a college teammate, Fred Ridley, is now the, the chairman of Augusta National. So it's all kind of syncing up now with you taking that approach to Merido, you knowing the chairman at Augusta. So my question is, 
have you gotten a phone call yet to be a consultant uh, the changes at Augusta? Tom Fazio's been there for forever, and he's done a fantastic job. And uh, he's got a great, a great roadmap for what they're doing moving forward. That sounds like a very uh, uh, politically correct statement, Steve. No, no, they're not. They're not going to change course. And um, I'm just proud of my old college teammate. That's all. He's he he's the right person for that position. Uh, and he's a he's a true leader. Has been a true leader in the game of golf, and will help continue to to grow the game, not only the game but that club as well. Uh, he'll do a great job. But getting back to what you said about the rough at Merido and the elite play. I think moving forward, um, you know, every if you look back at the game of golf, golf has grown tremendously since 1902. Uh, 1902 is when when Spalding came out with a Haskell golf ball with dimples on it, and it and with the dimples on the golf ball, it created a lift and drag, and people were able to hit the golf ball up in the air. Uh, they were able to hit it high and far, and basically since 1902 to now. Uh, there's been a major innovation that's been introduced into the game of golf that has allowed the game to to, to grow from basically not many golf courses to, to now we have 32,000 golf courses worldwide, and we've got 50 million people playing the game of golf. And, and it's all because of something that has been introduced or, or, or something that has changed in the game. And, you know, we could go through what's happened almost every single decade, but what's happening now is there's a big push for water conservation and turf reduction. And, and we're working now in Florida and Indiana, and water is, a, is and, and in Texas, water, water is, a, is a big issue for irrigation. So we, and, and you look at, uh, I'm putting everything together here, you look at how play, people play the game of golf with, um, with the titanium drivers, they're much more uh, stable than than clubs of the past. The golf balls that we're using are very stable golf balls. I remember we used to have we used to put these little rings in our golf bag, and uh, you'd test your golf ball every hole or every other hole to see see if it was out of round. Well, the golf balls are very stable; they're staying in, uh, and they're they're very consistent. So you always get a good uh, a quality golf ball, and so the the ballistics of the golf ball are very straight. Uh, compared to the old game, so if you take the turf reduction and the uh, turf reduction that is the environmental community is asking us to do, the water conservation, which is uh, the newer turf grasses coming out, is this kind of encourages a, a a playing field to have less turf, but highly maintained turf, than in the past. And what we did at Merido. We've only got 46 acres of highly maintained turf there, so the the rough is, you know, like I said, it's it's a native grass, and is being maintained just where the where it go, covers the equator of the golf ball. And if you look at the the statistics of of elite players coming out of the rough, their uh, proximity to the hole from a fairway to the rough is dramatically different. Uh, the the proximity of the hole from the rough is dramatically higher than proximity of the hole coming from the fairway, especially with a forward hole location. And once you get to the six and seven irons, then or the six and five irons actually, then the proximity of the hole becomes even larger 
uh, for players coming out of the rough as opposed to the fairway. So I think all that uh, comes into effect. And Jordan Spieth even made the comment that with a narrower fairway, it requires more of a precise tee shot because when the ball hits, it has the ability to roll out. If it hits in the rough, then it doesn't roll as much, so you've got the, the penalty from hitting uh, hitting out of the rough with a potentially fire lie, and you're probably going to be 10 or 15, maybe even 20 yards further back. One of the things I've always enjoyed about your golf courses are the, the greens and the putting surfaces. You've, you're not afraid to use contour. Uh, I've seen some of your greens that um, have been amongst the, the most um, uniquely contoured uh, that that I've come across in my travels. At a place like Meridot, where you know you're going to have to have high green speeds, you know players want want a, a quick surface. Did you have to tame down your contours there? You know, I think if you look at uh, any architects, you, we all go through an evolution of of design beliefs and philosophies. And I think the putting surfaces you're referring to is a, a couple of things that we did here in Florida. I would say that uh, our later designs and what we're doing moving forward, it, our putting surfaces have more slope than contour in, in them. Um, I'm much more aware of green speeds, wind conditions. I think our philosophy has changed a bit through the years. And what we're doing now, you know, the eye picks up contrast. I think we're we're putting more of our contrast around the edges of the greens as opposed to in the greens. And that does two things. Number one, it requires, it puts more of an emphasis on chipping the golf ball if you miss the green. I'm really big into uh, making people, if they miss the green, uh, hit different type of shots. Um, a lot of courses these days, a putter is a is a pretty strong option. We give you that option, but it's probably a better option to chip the ball. And uh, we're why, why is that? Our, so you can just so you can land it at a certain spot rather than having to roll it over a mound or a contour. Well, you know, uh, a great golf course requires a total examination of one's golfing talents and abilities, and chipping and pitching the ball and anticipating how the ball is going to come out of lie is a very, very, very precise examination of your of your golfing IQ. Um, and I think that that's, that's if you want to establish a golf course, uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking about a golf course, uh, a, a great golf course. Now, there are very nice recreational courses that will allow people to putt the ball. And I'm for that, but uh, we just did a public course down in Fort Myers where we, we encourage that to get people around the course. But at Merida, we wanted to be able to really have people identify the right shot for the occasion. And so we we put a strong emphasis on chipping and pitching the golf ball. So does that mean, I think you mentioned this before, but does that mean not everything is shaved down fairway height? Exactly. We have a dance between fairway and light rough around around Mm -hmm. the greens. And another thing where we did do fairway around the greens, we put little bumps and rolls and knobs so if you have to, if you do miss it on the fairway side, then uh, you'd have to negotiate those bumps, rolls, and knobs. Well, you could put it through there. It, you know, you still may want to pitch it. Uh, the other thing I've done, we've got a superintendent there who is a very good player. He won the uh, superintendent's championship one time. And uh, we're actually going with a little higher height to cut in the fairways and around the greens just so you can get a little bit of the uh, the club underneath the golf ball. 
and and be able to to uh, you know just that little bit more of uh, cushion under the ball, you're able to uh, execute different type of shots. Yeah, hearing you talk about how you've evolved a little bit in your in your outlook on internal contours of shaping greens, it reminds me of a, a course you remodeled in Florida at Plantation Bay Club du Beaumont. Uh, you we you took me around there, and then I went back another time. There's a hole that it's the, I believe it's the 14th hole. It's a uh, I believe it's a par five with a really large green. And I came up on the green, and I was just admiring it uh, from afar. It, it has so much movement and action in it, and a high high back section, and all these internal kind of levels and rolls. And it was, I was admiring it. I must have said something out loud because it was such a piece of art. And I probably said, "Wow, look at that." The, the superintendent, or I, I assume it was the superintendent, was nearby, kind of st- listening in his cart, and he laughed, and he said to me, he's like, that's almost 10,000 square feet and only four pin placements on it. <laughs> <laughs> Is that, well, we had a, we have a, a putting surface there that, uh, yeah, it's a Brits is what it is. It's a, it's a sideways Brits. And we, uh, when you do put uh, that type of, uh, when you do have a Brits, it does uh, take up quite a bit of space, and you either got the left or the middle or the back to to put a hole location. That's about it. But uh, yeah, I loved that, it. I, think I loved that it. But you know, he he had to view it from a different perspective. He had to work with it every day, and you know, think about foot traffic yeah. and all that. Yeah, yeah, that's well, that's uh, that's all part of the equation that we deal with. But you know, it is interesting. Uh, I think as designers, because the game evolves so much, uh, we have to we have to modify our design beliefs, our design philosophy with the evolution of the game. And and let me just give you an example. Since I got into the business, which is forty years ago, the green speeds. Have gone. We we only used to mow even the most elite golf courses in the world only mowed greens three times a week. And those three times a week, you know, the, even the the in 1977, the USGA did their first formal green green speed readings of elite clubs around America, and the average speed for elite clubs in America was 7.8. And a lot of these clubs only mowed their greens three times a week. So we, you know, the, the, the style of putting stroke, think back to how Jack Nicklaus putted. He was an arm and a wrist putter with six degrees of loft on his putter. Fast forward to 1996 when we started introducing uh, ultra-dwarf Bermudas in the uh, A and G series type of bent grass. You know, the, the green speeds went from eight or nine, all the way up to 11, 12, and 13, the newer type of grasses required more input, so they're constantly air fine, top dressing, uh, mowing more, rolling more, and the the uh, the style of putting went from six degrees aloft and a, a more of a wrist and arm stroke to the Tiger Woods version of more of a big muscle stroke with with uh, only two two degrees loft on the putter, so while the uh, while the game has always evolved, I think designers need to evolve with the game. And it's interesting the game of golf has always always evolved more from what has been introduced to it from a maintenance perspective, either through 
maintenance equipment or grasses more than it has anything else in my mind. Well, now would be a good time to talk about your service and your time with the USGA. You've been involved with the with that organization for a long time, and you've served on its uh, executive committee, most importantly. Um, you've also uh, served on its equipment regulation committee and c- competition committees. And, and you've always really sort of been resistant to this idea that the equipment is out of control. You're sort of a libertarian when it comes to uh, regulating equipment or the ball. But there's so much talk right now. It seems like a really critical hot point, especially about the golf ball. There's just more chatter on it uh, now than there has been in the past. Mike Davis from the USJ even uh, has recommended or come out to sort of insinuate that the ball might be something that they need to look at. But have have your views on the golf ball evolved? Would you be in favor of a tournament ball? Or, or have your views on equipment in general and how it affects the change, turf grass and agronomy effects notwithstanding, have you evolved at all from your perspective? Yeah, uh, I, I'm always evolving. Uh, let me put it that way. I, I, uh, I, number one, I don't think there's anything that, that people throw at us in the game of golf that we can't handle through the design. Um, and, and, a, and a lot of the argument is, well, what about the old classic courses? Well, the old classic courses are always evolving just through course management, uh, just how they maintain the turf. Uh, so things are always evolving and, and uh, through irrigation, different types of irrigation, uh, course conditioning, things like that. So, so that is always evolving. The, uh, the golf ball is a very complex situation. Uh, I can, I'm not going to name the names, but 20 years ago, there was a, um, uh, there was a big discussion with the tour about uh, coming up with a tournament ball. The problem with that is the tour, they they're in the entertainment business and they people always gravitate to the long hitters of the of the game so their galleries always want to go they, the galleries don't want to go watch Dustin Johnson hit as far as you and me that's the thing so um i think uh, and and i don't think we want to bifurcate the game because once we once we make one type of uh, uh provision for the game uh you know a condition of competition then it's kind of a slippery slope. So I, I don't see a tournament ball and a, and a, um, and a ball for everybody else. I, I, I think that would be a, a difficult situation. If, if I was king for a day and there was, if there was anything different, I'd make the elite players use persimmon, not, not titanium. Uh, I think that would identify more of a, of a, of a, a big swinger. I think that would. That would put more precision on hitting an accurate tee shot. Plus, I think the golf balls would change. They they wouldn't go from a hard ball. They'd go to a softer ball, which would kind of roll back the the distance on it. That seems. I mean, I I love the idea. That's what baseball does. You know, they they have wooden bats and everybody yeah. else can use metal. But that seems more of an unlikely scenario than uh, doing something or bifurcating the golf ball and having some kind of tour or tournament ball. Yeah, that's not really up to the USGA. I mean, I, I think the PGA Tour would would probably they 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 don't want to see one one rule for everyone. But let me. I mean, I could talk about this topic forever. Sure. But I think I think that uh, if if you were to uh, 
and I, I don't have the statistics in front of me, uh, Mike Davis and everybody would, but I know that uh, a couple years ago, if you take all tours worldwide, the average driving distance hadn't gone up much at all uh, from 2002 when the Statement of Principles were put out to just a couple of years ago. And I haven't really kept up on it, but I know that it hasn't really sizably changed. What has changed is the elite players. There always have been long hitters on tour, but they weren't necessarily the best players. Now the longest hitters on tour are the best players and they're the most identifiable. But if you were to, and I'm I'm a proponent of rolling back the golf ball. I think if you look at uh, some of the people who are coming on uh, the committees now, and I think there's a there's a big drum roll to roll back the golf ball. And I'm I'm pretty much I would be in favor of it, but I would have a bit of warning to that. I don't know where you'd roll it back to. Uh, I know that the golf course operators would have a bit of uh, hesitancy to roll the ball back too, too much because they'd be concerned that they'd be chasing away some of their clientele. I uh, I also know, so if you were to roll back the golf ball, say 10%, the athleticism of the modern-day player is such that I think that the elite, the big hitters in the game, I think they're going to, pick up just through athleticism they're going to pick up about a yard a year so in about i'm not going to say that's across the board but i'm going to say with the big the big the the biggest hitters of the game so if you were to pick up a yard a year in the next 20 to 30 years you'd have to look at back at rolling the golf ball back again to keep it where it is today so that would be my my only uh, my only uh Thing about rolling the ball back, you just have to say, okay, it's a, it's not a one time forever. We'd have to, uh, we'd have to look at it again twenty or thirty years from now. But you wouldn't. But you're not in I favor think, of bifurcation, where everybody else gets because that would I'm be not. a hard sell for the public to say, well, okay, well, you know, you can't buy the ball you used last year, the Pro V1 or the the noodle that you that you hit, you know, two hundred and ten yards off the tee. Now you're only going to drive at one ninety five. Yeah. That's a tougher sell than just saying to okay, you you hundred and fifty guys this week have to use this particular ball. I don't. I I, I that's that's kind of. You know, out yeah, of my league just, right there, but I, I that's where the that's, discussion is. Yeah, I think that's a hard. Well, the other the other interesting stat yeah. that that's come out recently, I saw it online anyway, is that scores have not changed on the PGA Tour in the last ten or twenty years. Um, yeah. So it's that uh, what that tells me is is you know the scoring is the same no matter how far they're hitting it. It's just an aesthetic thing. People don't want to watch pros, you know, hit hit driver wedge, driver nine iron into long par fours even though they're not necessarily scoring better because of a, a multiple list of, of reasons why. But it's just, right. it's just we just don't like the way that looks. <laughs> well, you know, my, my big belief is, to you know, uh, you should identify the best player. And, and identifying the best player is ha- having them use every single club in the bag. So that's where I fall down on it. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. I like to see them hit. Have to hit a drive. I'm like Donald Ross. I want to see him have to hit a, a long, accurate tee shot followed by a precise long iron shot. And the way they they hit driver now, it, you know, you're looking at 540 yard par fours to you know get home with a three iron now or four iron even. 
Well, yeah, yeah, even less than that. I think I think the uh, the the key there too, if they if they really wanted to shorten it up a bit, is watch how they're maintaining uh, the the agronomics of the golf course. I mean, when the tour comes to town, you're at the they basically turn the water off, so the the tour is getting a lot more roll than than the everyday player at the country club or the golf course. Right. Right. Because because of the way they're they're maintaining the uh, the the way they're irrigating the golf course or they're turning the water off on the golf course, um, you know. But the other thing, Derek, uh, and I heard this the other day: the average shoe size on tour in 1995 was nine, size nine. The average shoe size now is eleven. Jeez, how how so would anybody that, know that? <laughs> I didn't know they kept shoe well, size stats in '95. The person that told that told me that was Brad Bryant. Uh-huh. Um, you know, he won the U.S. Senior, and he's he's kind of switched on to it. But you think about the athleticism of the player, and then the other thing is we know so much more about the biomechanics of the body and how the how the body works and the athleticism of these modern day players. And you take Jordan Spieth for example; he's been working out with the same trainer since he was 12 years old. You know, you know, they the and they and there's so much more knowledge about how, what parts of the body to train, to, to make it work effectively with the other parts of the body. So you know, sequencing in the golf swing is a huge component of being being able to propel the golf ball further. So through understanding how the body works and understanding training, they can they can train themselves in the gym. To make their body sequence better throughout the golf swing, and and a great example of that is Rory McIlroy. Rory in 2010, I think I think this is the year. His swing speed was 112 miles an hour, and now it's 122 miles an hour. And what he basically did is he he worked out for a year and a half on. And I think I'm right on this. Uh, he right, worked out and got his his alignment of his body all in sync. Then he started this explosive weight training exercise, and that that with the sequence of events, he was able to pick up 10 miles an hour on on swing speed, which equates to about uh, 25 to 30 yards in the air, just 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 hitting a golf ball. So that that's just basically through conditioning. And I think that's where the, a lot of the elite players are going with it today. That's why you're seeing, you know, Dustin Johnson and Brooks Koepka and everybody hit the ball. Maybe that's the, the answer. We we regulate how often these guys can work out, and we make them eat cheeseburgers before <laughs> each round. Well, the, and I think that's why you're seeing Tiger. You know, what Tiger did last week is unbelievable to me. Me too. Uh, just to yeah. just to basically roll out of bed, the equivalent of of having a couple weeks to to get your swing together and to go out and play like that. I obviously nobody was really expecting that performance, but yeah, what did you, yeah, what did you think about that? I I I you know at, at age 41, I believe. I think he's 41 or getting ready to be 41 to be able to generate the speed in his swing that he was able to generate with six operations was, you know, I he's a he's a fantastic athlete anyways, but for him, for his body to recover, to be able to swing the golf club like that, that that was the most impressive thing to me. And he he hit some three woods and two irons that were just 
just unbelievable. And I mean, that's what he was doing 20 years ago. Yeah. And for him to be 41 years old and and have six operations and not be and hadn't played golf in 300 days and be able to hit it like that, I or haven't haven't played competitive golf in 300 days and hit it like that, that was truly amazing to me. It yeah, really I mean, was. it shouldn't surprise us. He's he's a superhuman in the world of golf and the way he swings a golf club. Um, yeah, nothing's we've never seen anything like that. And it's just you know the legend just took a little took a little time off because that was pretty legendary to be able to show up like that and off those surgeries like you said and, and play that and swing you know 180 mile ball speed off the driver i don't think anybody saw that coming yeah have you gotten have you gotten no, longer over no. the years no though at, at, at my age uh i i was able to through understanding this training a little bit better i was able to uh uh, I, I fell off the charts pretty good, but I, I'm able to get it back. Um, and my swing speeds come back a little bit because of this uh, understanding what this training is a little bit. I'm not getting any younger myself. I need yeah. a, Maybe I should look into this. My, my swing speed is dropping pretty significantly. I, yeah. When you first got into golf course design or were thinking about it, you – You've said before that you know you traveled around the world and and you know at great ex- personal expense to see many of the the world's greatest golf courses. How did you arrange that? I'm curious to know some of the places you went and, and how you how you were able to to set up your travels and get access to places and just make that commitment to your career. You know it's kind of interesting and, and it's funny you should ask that. I I was actually sitting with a client the other day. We we're talking about that. Um, I, uh, I, in 1964, I was 11 years old, and my parents took me to uh, the U.S. Open at uh, Congressional. That was my very first U.S. Open, our very first exposure to great golf. And then in 1969, we moved uh, to Houston, and I was able to caddy for uh, Miller Barber in the U.S. Open. He was leading by three rounds. In, after the end, uh, he was leading the championship at the end of three rounds. So that was kind of my first exposure to really great golf. And then I went to the University of Florida uh, to play on the golf team. And and uh, just through through the game of golf and having an interest, I mean, I remember going with a couple of my teammates to to Pinehurst to play in the North-South Amateur and playing Pinehurst number two. Of course, I'd always heard about it. There I was, and I just, just uh, through the years, have through my golf, playing in several USGA competitions, and through my design, you, you get to know people, you get invited to certain venues, uh, and it just kind of feeds on itself. And I guess I've been doing that since uh, for close to 50 years right now. And it's it's something that uh, I've learned a lot from. I've enjoyed it, and uh, it's been a great personal life experience for me. Now, we, when you were doing your travels ostensibly to look at golf courses that you weren't playing tournaments at to, for your own education, did you set out time and say, "I'm going," you know, th- these months I'm going to go to Scotland and look at links courses. I'm going to Australia now. Uh, so these were orchestrated tours that you arranged. I didn't really do, okay, I'm going to take two months to just extensively go on tours, but I would go, I would go over to play in the, uh, well, I started off playing in the British, uh, British amateur and we'd go over a few days early and play a handful of golf courses, play in the amateur championship. Then I got to know people in, in England, not build a golf course in England. So 
uh, I'd always go over there. We'd work and then we'd take a day or two and then go play a few golf courses or go look at them. So it wasn't an extensive tour, but it it's something that I always I always did. Uh, then I married this uh, my my wife. We've been married for 32 years. Uh, she's from Australia. I built two golf courses down there, and I did. I went down to Australia, played the sandbelt courses once a year for 10 years. Uh, I'd take a group down there. We'd only go down for four or five days at a time. A long trip to do that. But uh, we'd do that, and we'd go, uh, we'd play 36 a day. Be pretty tired when we get right. back, but uh, you do that a for a number time. of years. And that's, yeah, it was a good tired, and, and we never really, I never really said, for two months, I'm going to do this. But over, you know, the last 40 years, you just do a little bit here and a little bit there. And uh, through competition, through my through my passion for the game of golf, through knowing people, and through my work with the USGA, I've seen a lot of golf courses. Seen a lot of courses. Talked to a friend of mine the other day who used to be a golf commentator, and uh, he's still in the golf business. And we were talking, and he says, you know. Through them doing this, doing that, and doing this, they said, oh, I've seen a lot of golf courses and talking about him. Mm-hmm. So that that's just kind of what you do, really. No doubt. So when you're beginning your career and you've, you've been traveling and seeing and experiencing golf courses and you're, you've researched, I'm presuming, you know, you've studied a lot of the, the older architects, did you have a certain style or a, an inspiration in mind when you began designing your own new, new courses? You know, it's like anything else. It's evolved through time, and and I think I think the most important thing about architecture is everybody has their own rhythm and pattern, and so that I think you know my beliefs have have evolved over time. But the one thing that I've I'm really uh, keen on is, and we did this at Merido, we tried to develop a pattern, a pattern in in utilizing or creating the landscape, a pattern in the features that we we would develop, such as bunkers, putting surfaces, hollows, mounds, you know, uh, clusters of plant material, things of that that nature, where the pattern is something that it, you know, when people talk about it fitting their eye, well, the pattern felt good to people. And out of that pattern that we establish, the strategy of the golf course uh, emanates out of that and evolves out of that. And you you look at this and uh, intuitively you can pick up on the uh, on the shot patterns that you're supposed to establish. And I know that that's. I hope I'm not rambling on too much here, but that's uh, through studying all these architects through the years. I realized that everybody has their own type of pattern and and the pattern kind of evolves from the landscape. Sure, absolutely. On this topic of, you know, thinking about past architects and inspirations and influences and people who've helped define the golf course, world of golf course architecture, we always go back to the golden age architects. We always talk about Ross, we always talk about McKinsey. Is there a case to be made that we overlook the generations of architects that came between them and the current generations, the Robert Trent Jones eras. In your opinion, did those architects of the 40s, 50s, 60s, into the 70s, Pete Dye is off on his own, he doesn't count, but do they just have not nothing 
worth studying? I mean, I know you've a lot, some of your work has been going back and reworking golf courses from that era. You know, you are probably tired of seeing Joe Lee's work, but are we, um, you know, is, is there anything there that, that we should be paying attention to or were all the ideas already developed and taken to their ends by the golden age guys? You know, it, it's an interesting, uh, interesting question. Um, and you know, I think I, I've learned a lot. I talked uh, talk to a group of guys uh, a couple of days ago about Trent Jones. Yeah. Um, you know, they did a lot of good stuff, and it's interesting because you look at how things were done in the, in the 20s. I want to get back to that in a minute, but everything was really tuned into the site because of the limitations of earth moving equipment. Mm-hmm. When we got into the 50s and 60s, we started building everything with big earth movers, but we really hadn't developed the talent of the person sitting on the machine to create something artistically on a bulldozer. And think about that a minute. Now we have shapers that have been shaping for years, and we kind of understand patterns that we're supposed to establish. When the architects, uh, we went through a great growth of, uh, you know, building golf courses because of the economic growth of the 60s. You know, guys sitting on bulldozers back then, they were just learning how to to operate bulldozers. Yeah, they're probably used to grading roads. Exactly. So you think, and now we have specialist guys sitting on the machines that all, I've got guys that shape for me that have been working with us 25 years. Yeah. And so, you know, there, there's a different. I think that's the big difference. But I think if you look at where the game was and the sites that they were building, I think the guys in the 60s and 70s did a, did a pretty good job of, of what they did. Uh, and, the thought, and I think we're a little more sophisticated in today's world about what we're trying to develop overall as far as golf courses. Uh, we have a little better understanding of it. But I do want to go back to the the 30s and or to to Donald Ross. You asked an interesting question. I got asked this question the other day, and and, and you know everybody said, well, who is the most innovative golf architect of all time? And you think about it, an immediate response would be Pete Dye, because Pete evolved and he was always forward thinking about uh, you know where where the game was going and everything. But I took a second, I thought about it. And and I said Donald Ross was the, was probably one of the most innovative architects uh, to ever live, and uh, that kind of befungled everybody. I was giving a little talk to about thirty people, and if you think about it, in 1920, the lowest height to cut on a putting surface that the the height to cut on the putting surface was the mower that could could mow the lowest. It was three quarters of an inch. That was the average height to cut on putting surfaces three-quarters of an inch. Right now we're mowing fairways at below half an inch. So in 1920, uh, a mower was introduced that could take the height to cut down to about a third of an inch. In 1920, and then also in 1920, the USGA green section was formed just to understand how to grow grass. Then in 1929, we introduced steel-shafted clubs into into our industry. And the steel-shafted clubs allowed golf balls. You would talk about distance. Uh, you know that all automatically allowed people to drive the golf ball 30 or 40 yards further. 
about that time they figured out that they could they could put tubes in the ground and pump water through these tubes and take water to putting surfaces. If that was the first form of uh, irrigation. Then in 1932, Gene Saracen developed the sand wedge. And then right after that, Donald Ross went out and took his beloved Pinehurst number 2 course, and he went from 6,300 yards to 7,001 yards. He converted the greens from sand to grass, which was pretty innovative at the time, pooched the greens up, stuck them up in the air, to allow for greens that were missed around the, you know, for, for approach shots that were missed to be able to use the sand wedge around the green. So, and then he lengthened, I told, said he lengthened the golf course over 700 yards. So he took all the innovations of that past decade and he took those innovations and put them in his, into his design. And, and because of that, he, he created a fabulous golf course, one of the world's greatest golf courses and gave the whole Pinehurst area tremendous recognition. So, uh, you know, I kind of think that he might have been the most innovative golf architect of all time. Certainly willing to adapt and and stay current with technology and utilize that. Right. I noticed you said on your website when you, I guess it was the the Fort Myers Project, which is an old Donald Ross course, and you didn't try to recreate Ross literally you didn't bring out his old sketches and and I don't know if they had any but you know you did an interpretation because you wrote on your website that you believe that he wouldn't have designed and made those decisions that he did in 1907 or 1917 he he wouldn't have done made those same decisions today based on the technology and the grasses and the irrigation and the equipment that he saw well that's right and 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 consider this back in those days they golf courses shut down in the winter, in the summertime in Florida. Uh, we didn't really have Bermuda grass; it was all bahia grass, and which is grass that you see along the roadsides. So that bahia grass, uh, you know, and that's that's uh, one of the reasons fairways were so wide as well because the 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 mowers they they would mow that grass at just over an inch height to cut for the fairways, and then the next height to cut was was three inches. So the fairways had to be wide, or else you'd hit the golf ball and you couldn't find it. That that was the first thing. But I did look at the old plans that Ross had back then. He had forced carries on what was I? If I'm going by memory, either on all 13 or 14 of the holes off the tee. Forced carries off the tee. Now Pinehurst, or uh, I'm sorry, Fort Myers Country Club, is a daily fee golf course that does 70,000 rounds a year. If we had forced carries off the tee for those people, uh, they, 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 we'd never get them around the golf course. So, yeah, I think, you know, the market's changed, the type of grasses have changed, uh, let alone the clientele. You know, we've got a lot of people down in Fort Myers that are playing golf in their 70s and their 80s. And I'm not even sure the life expectancy was, I think life expectancy when Ross was around was 67 or so. So you've got a tremendous change in the overall dynamics of people playing the game and how it's maintained. So I'm sure if Ross came back today, he wouldn't have done the same thing now that he did back then. You're not, you know, as far as I know, you don't really uh, do restorations, um, but if you, if you were hired at, at an old New England club that Ross designed, 
would you have any interest in doing a true restoration or would you always apply the thought that Ross would have evolved and done things differently based on the current cir- circumstances? I'd, I'd love to do a restoration. It's uh, something that uh, we, you know, just it's, we've only got so much time to do things. I, I, I'm a, I think I'm as traditionally minded as anybody in the game. <clears throat> I really do. Uh, I will say this, though, the greatest link to, to tradition is innovation. Uh, and I, I, I think you could make a very strong case for that. What do you mean by that? Um, so, well, the the true traditions of the game, if you look at the game of golf uh, since it's exploded since 1902, there has been an innovation. Like I said this earlier, every 10 years, some sort of major innovation into the game that has helped pro- propel the game forward. So um, the greatest link to to the traditions of the game is some sort of innovation that's been introduced, whether it's through mowers, whether it's through the introduction of, of different turf grasses, introduction of the golf ball, introduction of steel shafted clubs, introduction of, um, uh, I've mentioned the golf ball, uh, different type of putter designs, introduction of different turf grasses, uh, introduction of different irrigation systems. There's always been something that has made the game more interesting and has, has allowed these people to come into the game of golf. I think the 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 real uh, historical value of these architects is the patterns that they set up in their designs. Uh, if you look at what the 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 grades on the putting surfaces that the old classic architects did in the 20s. Uh, they're they're designing those putting surfaces with green speeds of, of you know maybe four. Keep in mind that these greens were were mowed only a couple times a week, and and uh, and in 1920 the lowest height they cut was three quarters of an inch. So the, if these architects came back now, they would say, okay, we would keep the same type of patterns and the same type of shot values, but we would we would have to take the detail work of our designs and do them a little differently. And I think that's the question that you asked. Yeah, I just I, it was an interesting way to look at it. You saying the the link to to tradition is is through innovation. I I think I understand what you mean by that now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just think of the game of golf in 1902 when it was first introduced when it first really started taking off in America. And think about the major jumps and Think about the 20s and then 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 introducing all the steel shafted clubs, the sand wedge and things like that. And think about how that game has evolved through the years. Think about bulldozers in the 60s. Uh, Automatic irrigation. The first two automatic irrigation systems were installed in 1970 at Augusta National and Pine Valley Golf Club. Those were the two first automatic irrigation systems. So, um, you know... Before that, it was quick coupler systems, and that's when I first got involved in uh, in golf. When we moved to Houston, Texas, I worked on. I helped out uh, all my high school buddies on the grounds crew. We we uh, we served as the night water guys uh, during the summertime, and those were quick coupler irrigation systems. You stick the quick coupler in there, and it was uh, it was all done manual. Because of that, because of irrigation. Developers realized that uh, it wasn't strictly because of irrigation, but developers realized we can have homes on this nice, pretty golf course 
and to have homes on a nice, pretty golf course, we'll expand our irrigation system. And so that kind of helped propel, you know, make make golf courses a little bit more uh, recognizable because we're helping them develop them in the, into communities mm-hmm. at that time. You know, then in the 80s, we came up with uh, the reintroduction of steel shaft or steel-headed golf clubs. And then the 90s, we came in with, uh, with uh, you know, the hybrid Bermudas and the G-Series events. So that has always helped make the game more enjoyable and propel the game forward. I'm going back to the way we opened our conversation, talking about the quest for great golf sites and, you know, that that carrot is always out there. You want to get that, that great site where you can really, you know, show what you can do. I don't mean to be insensitive with this question, but I've I've thought about it a lot. One site like that was developed a few years ago, almost in your backyard, stream song down the down the street. What was your right. what was your thoughts feeling about that when when you came to learn about that project and that would have been an opportunity for you right up the road you know, to to finally get a, a big beautiful sandy site like that. Yeah. You know, um that is a that's an unbelievable project. I think what uh, Mosaic Group uh, has done for for the com- for for the community, I think is fantastic. You know, they that site is uh, probably it's it's extremely unique. It is a very manufactured site, though, because they um, they're a big mining operation, and they mine that for the phosphate in the land. And when they come back to when they when they mined it, they've mined all the phosphate out. They have to restore the site back in some way, shape, or form. So their form of restoring it back was through golf courses, and they left those big manufactured sand dunes. Uh, that's why they were able to leave them in the form that they were, because normally when you when you restore a site, you put it back into the old flat Florida landscape. So they they uh, the, those are beautiful natural looking but very manufactured sites they weren't pristine like that to begin with if that's what you're asking um, i was asking i was asking you know, they have did it was it did it burn a little bit that you didn't get a chance since it was so close to home to design on a place like that yeah i, I talked you know i talked to the local representatives there uh but the national office had pretty much decided they wanted to go with the uh with the model of abandoned dunes and unfortunately i was not involved in the model of abandoned dunes so uh, you know, I've I've applauded what Ben and Bill have done, what Tom Doak and uh, recently what Gil Hans has yeah, done. Yeah, I, I say that, Steve. As, I, I, I know you know. Um, as an advocate, I I would really love for you to get a abandoned type site or a sand valley or a stream song. Yeah, because I mean, we've got to see what you can do with it. It would be fascinating. Yeah, I pre- I appreciate you saying that. And, you know, I I uh, that's the one hole in my resume that I have I don't have right now. Uh, we had a fantastic site. We had, at one time, we had two great sites like that, and the economic downturn kind of uh, kind of put them both back. One was uh, one was in Iceland, yeah, black right sands. in the black sands. Uh, yeah, it was a fa- fantastic site. And believe it or not, we had another one of all places in the United Arab Emirates, but it were the dunes right on the uh, Arabian Sea there. And unfortunately, that one never went through either. <laughs> it's the, that's the economy yeah. of golf. 
So right. on that on that yeah. note, I'm going to ask you as we kind of wind down here a, a couple quick questions. Um, what's the best modern golf course that you've seen that you did not design? Uh, you know what? Uh, and I'm <laughs> I'm going to put it back. It it may not be that modern, but I get that question asked all the time, and I just love the honors course in Chattanooga, mm-hmm. Tennessee. The beat that I did. I just think it's a fabulous golf course. What's what do you like about it more than so, some of his other work? <clears throat> you know, it's a great club. Number one, it's a great club, <clears throat> great group of people. But and I go, I harken back to the days when I first started playing it. It was a great shot making golf course. I mean, you had to really hit some fantastic shots on that course. You had to drive it well. Uh, number one, number one, the course had great flow around the property. And if you were going to play golf or not play golf, if you're just going to go for a walk, it was a great walk. And then the then the the flow, how the golf course ran along the site, it it was a comfortable place to be there to be there, but it also required very it was a very stimulating shot making experience. And when you pulled the shots off, it was just a great feel. If you didn't, you'd always have the ability to recover. And I just, I just really, really enjoyed all those, those components. And it had just a great mix of holes, long holes, short holes, great par threes, great par fives. It's been a few years since I've been back there, but it's always been a, a, a great stimulating experience for me. Can you think of a golf course that you've seen recently that surprised you? Maybe you had no knowledge of it or you had low expectations going in, but when she got there, you were really surprised at what you found? You know, I went to a course in Chicago, a brand-new course that just opened. Uh, Greg Barton did it. It's a public course in Chicago, and, I, and the name is escaping me. It's only been open about a month, and I walked around the property, and I, I didn't get to see all 18 holes, but I said, this is going to be pretty neat right here. This is pretty neat. It's the way he handled it's the way he handled the site environmentally. Just gave the site a very, very good feel. And I'm sorry, I'm struggling for the name right now, but it's a public course just on the west side of Chicago. Hmm. I have to look into that. I'm not familiar with that either. Yeah. Yeah, it just uh, it, it either has just opened. I think I believe it's just open for for light okay. play. You have two sons, correct? Do they yes. do they have yeah. any interest in getting into the family business now? Um, you know, intelligence skips a generation. <laughs> uh, both of them, both of them are extremely uh, smart. My my oldest got his master's at NYU in uh, business. And he's pursuing a career in business. He worked up uh, in New York for a while, and he's overseas working in the financial world. And my other son, Scott, is, um, is following in his mother's footsteps. He's playing golf professionally now. He he had status in Asia last year, and in Latin America, unfortunately, he had some back spasms. He wasn't able to play, but he's playing to a very high level right now. And uh, is going to continue playing on the Latin American tour next Congratulations. year. Congratulations. That's great. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. So when I, I talk about the biomechanics of the golf swing and, and the athleticism and everything, right now we've got two two young men. play. Uh, they're all playing in, uh, overseas. And so i uh, staying at our house, so I get to talk to them on a nightly basis about their golf games and where they are. And, well, they're not on the PGA Tour. They're not that far off, and uh, I, I kind of understand the modern-day game because of that. 
in the uh, ASGCA, if you're going to play a tournament, a team tournament, who do you want to be your partner? Well, Trip Davis is pretty uh-huh. daggone good. Not only is he not only is he a good architect, he he at one time was a heck of a good player. Um, and he, like me, has played in several USGA competitions. Uh, has had a very good career as an amateur golfer. Uh, he's got uh, kind of a bad wrist right now, and I know he's struggling with that. But uh, if he gets through that, he's a he's a pretty good stick and uh, a lot of fun to play golf yeah, with. I imagine well. if I asked uh, all the members that, your name would probably surface more often than not. I'm an old guy, though. <laughs> I, I think oh, you can oh, still get it around pretty good. All my, all my newspaper articles have yellow on them, so uh, <laughs> don't believe it. Yeah. Right. Well, Steve, it's been really good catching up with you. I enjoyed it. I think we got we even have probably a lot more to talk about. At least I do. Hopefully, we can do it again sometime. But it was uh, thanks a lot for your time, and it was like I said, it was good to talk to you. Derek, thanks so much. I appreciate you thinking of me. Okay. How about Steve Smyers coming in and dropping some facts and figures on us and a lesson in history and the history of golf design as well. That was strong. Just to follow up on the golf course that Steve saw outside of Chicago, it's called the Preserve at Oak Meadows, designed by Greg Martin. Uh, And in fact, Golf Digest just awarded it its Green Star Environmental Award. So based on Steve's recommendation, if you're in the Chicago area, you should go check it out. We also spent a lot of time talking about player fitness on the tour and how their athleticism and and body types have changed over the years, even their shoe size, and and the effects of how that change in athleticism and strength has led to longer and longer drives on the tour. If we do think this is a problem, I think we should pursue my idea, which is we strap them to monitors, and if their heart rate rises above 125 beats per minute, the tour is instantly notified. We rush in, we shut down the workout immediately. Then, on the first tee, they eat four, maybe five cinnamon buns before each round. And over time, what will happen is their bodies will slowly deteriorate back to the conditions that we saw in the 1980s and 90s when players were a a little less fit, a little shorter, a little more dumpy. And this is not to, you know, harm them or, you know, make them uh, less healthy. It's really just so we can see the players hit fours and five irons into par fours again. That would be nice. On a more serious note, I hope Steve didn't take offense to uh, my question about stream song. I was really hoping to get a, a candid reaction, an emotional reaction to that. You know, it's one thing when you see your competitors working on amazing golf sites at far outposts of the world in New Zealand or Newfoundland. Uh, it's another when that site is 30 or 40 minutes down the road from your office and where you spend most of your time. Streamsong is a brilliant place. All three of those golf courses are amongst my favorite places in the country. And so this is not to suggest that uh, Steve Smyers could have done a better job than Tom Doak or Bill Coor or Gil Hance, but he's done some of his best work on sites that really offer very little. They're just really kind of plain, ordinary sites. And and Steve Smyers' golf courses are some of the most interesting in the country, in my opinion. It would just be fascinating to see him be able to work on a site like Streamsong where you have deep, sandy soils and a lot of natural contour and great features. And I was really just hoping to get his reaction. But he's really too much of a professional to betray too much emotion on that. I do want to thank Steve Smyers for being my guest this week. Thank you all for listening. Uh, remember to visit the website feedtheball.com for information on upcoming podcast episodes. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram. Look up Derek Duncan or Feed the Ball. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to it on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Go to your app on your phone, search for Feed the Ball, hit the subscribe or plus button. It's very simple. It's very easy. 
So that'll do it for another episode of Feed the Ball. Thanks again for tuning in. I also want to thank the Sun Dogs from Decatur, Georgia, for giving me the bumper music. And we'll close it out today with a song called My Last Drink. I'll be lost inside of another day. Well, ain't no big deal to talk about. I'll just live in the highlight. If she don't